All right. So we have uh, six attributes left. We're going to, I'm, I'm hopeful that I'll be able to get all six done between this week and next. But the uh, two attributes that we're going to be working on next week are uh, the jealousy of God, which sometimes brings about a fair amount of discussion, and also uh, the wrath of God. So we'll see. It, it, it'll either be finished with the uh, um, doctrine of God next week or the week after, and then we'll uh, be diving back into some more of the apologetic um, arguments and so forth as we keep moving forward. So so tonight we're going to look at uh, uh, holiness and righteousness. Um, it's page 105. You got a new page 105 I, I printed up for you. Um, so hopefully that will uh, can help or fit in your notes with you. The holiness and the righteousness of God. So uh, it's interesting because um, well, well, I'll talk about it when we get there. So as we look at let's look first at the holiness. God's holiness is both a metaphysical and a moral attribute. So God is holiness, and God acts holy. You and I can reflect God in the moral uh, attributes. We cannot reflect God in the metaphysical attributes. So we... We are not holy, but we can uh, um, make those uh, holy decisions, if you will. We can act holy. We can reflect holiness. Um, it will never be, I guess the idea is with God, it's intrinsic. It's who he is. So that's how he is. For you and I, it's extrinsic. Intrinsic means it's inside of us. Like if I eat a brownie, then the brownie is intrinsic. However, when the brownie is on a plate out in front of me, it's extrinsic. It's outside. So for us, holiness is something outside, right? We, we can't eat it or put it in us, but we can respond as we learn about it and, and what God's Word teaches and, and how God's Word calls us. So those are some of the things that will come up under both holiness and righteousness. So as such, H.C. Uh, uh, or R.C. Sproul says this, In one sense, holiness is an overall attribute of God that distinguishes Him from everything else that exists. So, God is holy other. He's, he is, it's again, kind of follows the concept of transcendence. Everybody know what I mean by transcendence? So, so far above us, you know, it's, it's difficult to relate. Uh, the biblical words for holy is, is uh, godesh, which means uh, partness, sacredness. And gadosh, which is translated sacred or holy. The Greek word is hagios, um, again meaning righteous, holy, or pious. Defining holiness is a, is a bit of a challenge, right? We'd probably ask three people, we'd have all slightly different, but not wrong, but slightly different concepts of what it means to be holy. So we really want to try to set uh, our our concept of that really in our foundation. Our foundation is the Word of God. So what's the Word of God tell us? How's the Word of God lay it out for us? What's God tell us is that kind of behavior that, that we can emulate. 
So theologically, God's holiness means He's totally, utterly set apart from all of His creation. And totally and utterly set apart from evil. God is not evil. So if we ever come to a conclusion uh, in an assertion that says God is evil, the Bible is very clear that God is not evil. So if our the conclusions of our argument is leading us to a place where God is evil, which is wrong. So it's our, it's our conclusions that, that we need to take a look at. Why are we coming up with that idea? And is that idea accurate or biblical? Because the Bible's pretty clear, right? God is uh, light, and in him is how much darkness? No darkness. Now, does the Bible tell us God uses evil? We talked about that, right, when we talked about the providence of God. So, so we know that God sends, and he, we see the scripture say he sends an evil spirit. Does that make God evil? According to the Bible, no, it does not. does not make him evil. So does God, is God according to, what was it, Isaiah 45, I want to say? 45-7? So it talks about, and specifically it talks about God... Uh, um, uh, creates evil. Uh, ESV, NASB, NIV say destruction, but it falls along the same lines. Really, it's like uh, the tornado, the tidal wave. The are there things on earth outside of God's sovereign power and decree? And that really begins to divide the body of Christ. Those issues divide. The answer for um, how to deal with evil is what ultimately divides Armenian and Calvin. Um, that's, that's the ultimate. I mean, if we go down to the nuts and bolts, it's the answer to, to the problem of evil. If you go to RZIM, Ravi Zacharias uh, Ministries, where he, uh, he's an apologist, um, he has a very different argument for evil than if you went to James White. One is going to come from a reform point of view. The other is going to come from a... I'm just trying to describe the views. The Armenian point of view. But the concept in one is going to be the answer to evil is man's free will. And the answer in the other point of view is God's sovereign decree. So if God decrees it, it occurs as part of God's purpose and plan. On the other side, it's man's decree and where man's free will has brought about evil the struggle with that is it's hard to blame a tornado on that right but but that's kind of the division in the argument so you guys know what i mean so i don't want to get too far off on the side but the idea then is scripture teaches god is not evil he's perfectly good so whenever we're developing our arguments if we're going to because that's part of the apologetic right we're going to develop an argument for people are going to ask us how do you have a good God and evil things happen? So as we develop our argument, we have to look and say, there are certain places my argument can't take me. If my argument takes me to a place where God is evil, then my argument's bad and I need to take a look at it again. That makes sense? So we, we want to consider those things. That's why it's important that we know the, the attributes of God. And we have kind of a concept of, well, who is God and what is God like and what does the Bible tell us about him so that as we develop our, our, our arguments, we are landing 
on a biblical foundation of who God is. Sound fair? Hopefully. <coughs> so I didn't say, by the way, that's easy. I just said that's our goals. So here's what we're saying. He is totally, utterly set apart from all creation, from all evil. His holiness is associated with, one, his jealousy. We're going to talk about that next week. Uh, Joshua twenty four nineteen. Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. And he will not forgive your transgressions nor your sin. So we're going we're gonna to chew a little bit on the idea of what does it mean that God is jealous. But ultimately, I, I think it all comes back to the simple answer about what is it that God wants from you. What's God want from us? Simple, one sentence. What's he want? Huh? What else? What do you think? Obedience good? What verse? Lots of verses for obedience, but... Okay, so I think it all comes to the Shema, which fits obedience, but it's the motivation for obedience. The Shema is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, right? Uh, teaching these things to your children, what, what, what's the motivation, right? It's because we love God. So all of that, I think, comes down. Does God want a part of us? Does God want a room in our life? Does God want a corner of our heart? And if we've only given him a corner of, of our heart, depending on your soteriology, or if, if you're only partially committed to the Lord, are you really committed to the Lord? Does that make sense? So when we talk about the jealousy of God, we're going to say God's a jealous God. He wants it all. All of you. And that's part of his attribute, but his holiness is associated with it. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that it can't be jealous in the way that we tend to look at jealousy. You get what I'm saying? Remember, we're defining Hebrew concepts and thought through uh, English words that are in some ways less colorful or defined. So so we want to we be able to comprehend that. But what we want to know is his, he's holy when he's jealous. So remember holiness, totally different, utterly set apart, transcendent. Um, and that's, that's the concept that we want to hold to as we look at it. We'll, we'll kind of delve into that some more next week. <coughs> um, theologically, just talking about the definition of holiness, kind of complex. His, it's uh, associated with his exaltation. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill for the Lord our God is holy. So the, the command in Psalm 99.9 is exalt the Lord. What does that mean? Exalt the Lord. So it's, it's a picture of lifting them up, right? So, so exalt the Lord and worship at his holy hill. Why are we doing that? That next four, that word four tells us why we're doing it. For the Lord our God is holy. Bigger, other, transcendent. Um, sacred, all those things wrapped up. Isaiah 51.6 says, But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. So the Lord of hosts, capital L-O-R-D, so who are we talking about? Yeah. Yahweh. Okay, So Yahweh 
shall be exalted in same kind of a concept, right? Exalted, lifted up. He's exalted. His judgments are right. We don't have all the same information God does, so we're kind of a poor judge on whether or not what God has done is righteous. But God says, I'll be exalted. My judgment is high. Isaiah 55 tells us the same thing, right? As high as the heavens are above the earth, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts higher than our thoughts as well. But what is that rooted in? It's rooted in his holiness. God is holy. Um, His righteousness. It's associated with his righteousness. In Isaiah 5.16, we just looked at that. It shall be hallowed in righteousness. In Luke 175, it says, In holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. (coughs) His holiness and righteousness come together. It's associated with his almightiness. In Revelation 4.8, we have the four living creatures around the throne. Everybody familiar with with the scripture? The Bible, when it talks about angelic beings, how many types of angelic beings do we know of? What do you think? What? I don't know. What's the two? Seraphim? Cherubim? I would argue a third would be living creature. So, so <laughs> we can run to the Nephilim. The, so, the, so I would say, I would say the division is cherubim, Seraphim, living creature. Uh, you know, it's just an assertion. I don't know that it's proof positive. How does the Bible describe it? Thrones, principalities, powers. So we don't really get a solid definition, right? But we know angelic beings are described as cherubim, seraphim, and living creatures. The four living creatures that are always around the throne. What do they say every day? Holy, 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 holy Lord God Almighty. Right? I would, I would probably argue that an archangel is a type of seraphim or cherubim. Um, but I, I, I can't prove that. So you could say archangel is, is different. I would say that Michael, uh, obviously we know Michael's an archangel. And I would say Satan was an, an archangel. But I don't know that I could prove that either. It would be an assertion based on Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, which, you know, can be argued as to whether or not that's describing Satan or not. But but that's what I would point to. And, and the only absolute archangel we know of in the Bible is Michael. And the other is kind of a supposition. So, but I would I would think that they are of one of those types. And I don't even know that I could define for you the difference between cherubim and seraphim. I just know they're described that way. And, and these guys, the four living creatures, are kind of trippy, right? How many faces do they have? How many wings do they have? Six. And when they fly, do they turn? Nope. They just change direction. That's got to be a wild sight. You know, I would imagine seeing that is going to be pretty wild. But nonetheless, the point is, they are there to proclaim the, the holiness of God described in his almightiness his that he's all-powerful his his strength his majesty uh his absolute uniqueness in exodus fifteen eleven, who is like you O lord or yahweh among the gods who is like you glorious in holiness fearful in praises and doing wonders 
the purpose of, of Exodus 15.11? Again, the transcendency, right? Holy other. The, in His metaphysical traits, God is very much unlike us. Even though we're created in the image of God. Uh, his moral purities. 2 Corinthians 7, one. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So, we're trying to reflect Him, and His purity becomes the desire for ours, right? Does the Bible tell us to be holy? Be ye holy as I am holy. That's pretty straight, right? So... Um, also, His holiness is associated with His being vexed by evil. Uh, yes, again and again they tempted God and the Word in uh, um, and limited the Holy One of Israel. The I think it's I think I got it later on in the ESV. I think it uses vexed. Uh, yeah, seventy-eight forty-one. No, it doesn't use vexed. It says it provoked Him. But the, I didn't really like the word limited. The word limited bugged me. So, yes, sir. I would say um, our reborn spirit is not perfected. So when we are born again and our spirit gives life, the Bible says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Uh huh. And so the Bible tells us, according to Romans, it says we go from justification to sanctification to glorification. So it, it at least intimates a process. And then that and this scripture saying that we want to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of, of the flesh and, and spirit. Sure. So I, I would, I, I mean, obviously, I, uh, I agree that we are new creations created in Christ Jesus, but when we're created, we're not perfected. So that there's a process uh, of sanctification that occurs that's a part of it. And while we don't have to, we are like the metaphysical opposite of God. So God in His being is perfect, holy, truth and i'd say we're our tendency is opposite of all those things so that's why we're a new creation but there's a walk that we walk right that that's right and that walk of sanctification is a walk that is wrought in us by the holy spirit which is given to us in our regeneration so so i think that that becomes a process it doesn't have to be Long, you don't, I don't agree. I don't believe you have to sin. Obviously, you can not, right? But it's, uh, 
and it, it becomes a struggle. The Bible describes it as a, a walk or a race, which indicates to me that there's a growth, there's a progression in uh, in the spirit. There's a progression as we as we draw near to Him. So the day you get saved, you may be you may love Jesus as much as ten years later, but hopefully your life things have changed in your life as you've as you've moved forward. Um, it also is associated his holiness that it should inspire the fear of God Uh, the fear of God inspired Isaiah 29 23 when he sees his children um, the work of my hands in his midst they will hallow my name and hallow the holy one of Jacob and fear the God of Israel so the holiness of God should drive us to the fear of God, right? Which is the beginning of wisdom. So uh, it's something that we want to have expressed in our life. And then the perpetual worship of his creatures by the holiness of God. (coughs) Excuse me. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering, come before him. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. So the holiness of God should... uh, propel us toward worship. Uh, Revelation 4, 8, we, we saw again the same idea. Uh, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Even the, the living creatures are um, compelled to worship in the presence of God, in the, in the presence of His holiness. So look at the big biblical basis for the holiness of God. Several scriptures that talk about the fact that God is holy by nature. That carries the idea of God being intrinsically holy. Um, Exodus 15.11 we looked at. Leviticus 11.44 and 45. (laughs) says, For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves. And you shall be holy for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So twice at least God just says, I am holy. You should be holy. I am holy. Um, Yeah, he's saying that, that God is... People who... People who uh, follow the Lord are going to emulate His characteristics and attributes. So if we say, uh, I love the Lord with all my heart, one of the things that we should be committed to in life is to be like Him. And He is holy. So we should be different. We should be sacred. We should be other. So still the same, you know, it all leads us to the same point of uh, transformation of life. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, Leviticus, several in Leviticus. Leviticus 19.2 Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. <clears throat> Leviticus 27 Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I, the Lord, uh, for I am the Lord, your God. 
So we want to respond to God in that attitude of holiness. <coughs> Leviticus 21. Therefore you shall consecrate him, for he offers the, uh, the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, will sanctify you, who sanctify you, am holy. So speaking of the, the function of the priesthood, he shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. So it's the same work uh, that God does through. You have uh, a call for the priesthood into holiness. You have a call of the people to be consecrated and sanctified. And all that Old Testament and New Testament was all wrought the same way, not by human effort, but by really human surrendering and allowing God to, to work that work within us. Right? Make sense? Um, Joshua twenty four nineteen we looked at already. First Samuel two two. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. So keep in mind the concept that is being laid out for it. We don't achieve the level of holiness that God has. God is holy. We should be holy. We try to reflect. We try to um, obey, walk, be consecrated and sanctified. We know now in part, right? Think about how Paul tells us in uh, 1 Corinthians 13. We see now through a mirror dimly, but what will happen one day? We'll see face to face, right? We'll know as we are known. I think on that day, the level of holiness that, that we have is going to increase dramatically. But for now, that's going to be a battle. And to me, that battle is a battle of surrender. Surrendering to the hands of the, of the potter to mold the clay. And mold us and make us. First um, Samuel six twenty and the men of Beth Shemesh said, "Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God Yahweh? And to whom shall it go up for us?" So the response of the enemies of God even saw the holiness of God intrinsically. First um, Chronicles sixteen twenty nine. Give to the Lord the glory do His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness again. Psalm seventy eight forty one. That that uh, psalm we talked about earlier. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. Must I think it's the NIV that says vexed, vexed the Holy One of Israel. <clears throat> That's why I think it's important when we study to get used to using multiple translations. Why? Because you're still translating from one language to another. And the concept that there's a word-for-word -word translation is just not reality. And not in any language. I can't tell you how many guys I worked on a job with who were Mexican who tell a joke in Spanish and everybody laughs. And I say, tell me the joke. And they say, don't translate. <laughs> oh, come on. Tell me, and they tell me the joke. And I go, yeah, that, that really don't translate. It, that cultural part of it didn't, doesn't come across. There's not a word-for-word -word translation that brings the meaning. You guys get what I'm saying? So when we use five uh, translations that use different words, it helps us get at the meaning, uh, what the message is trying to be to come across. So don't be afraid of that. There's no such thing as the perfect translation unless you go to a King James-only church, and you're currently not in one. 
So you may be frustrated if that's kind of where you're coming from. Um, so, um, 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 Psalm 99, 5 and 9, Exalt the Lord our God, worship at His footstool, holy is He. Psalm 99, 9, Exalt the Lord our God, worship at His holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. The point being, Scripture teaches us clearly that God by nature is holy. So when you are by nature holy, the things you do are holy. We, however, are not by nature holy, so it requires surrender from us. Um, God has a holy name. Leviticus 22.2, speak to Aaron and his sons that they separate themselves from the holy things of the children of Israel, that they do not profane my holy name by what they dedicate to me. I am the Lord. Now, you guys remember this particular story? What happens to, to Aaron's sons? Yeah, they, they bring something they shouldn't have brought, right? And they're consumed uh, by fire um, because they brought strange fire. <laughs> Why? Because they profaned his holy name. Now, we, the church, make a rule about that, and we say that somehow is a curse word. But that's not what they did. They didn't curse. What did they do? They profaned God's name. How'd they do that? They brought something as holy to God that was not holy. Exactly. So I'm not trying to define where, why they, I just know what they did was coming to God in a way that God did not prescribe. So they were to come to God, the priesthood, the directions for the priesthood in terms of, of being able to address the Lord, uh, being able to come to Him in the temple and certainly in the Holy of Holies, there was a, a very distinct way that that's done. For us, New Testament under the New Covenant, how is it that we come to the Father? Through Jesus Christ, His Son. And so the example here is simply trying to find a way to God that's not God's prescribed way, and there's no other way to come to Him. You get what I mean? No, I'd say I'd say that's right on. That's right. That's right. You can't touch it. Let it fall. Yeah. And David, David really freaks out about it, right? In that story, David freaks out. He leaves the ark and goes home. And how is it that he learned the proper way to move the ark? He read the word. And when he read the word, he goes, oh, oh, we can carry it with poles. That's what those rings were for on the side. So, so we have to understand that this, and this is, becomes vital in, in our apologetic because there are a lot of people who will say, oh, come on, we can get to God anyway. But that's not the clear teaching of the Word. Now, they can reject that, but I think it's our responsibility as believers to present that. You know what? This is what the Bible says. There's one way. The Bible says we only come to God the way he, He's God, and we got to come to Him His way, how He prescribes us to come. 
And whatever way that is, is holy, it's just, it's right, it's, it's good, it's loving, it's all those things that make up who he is. But when we, as mankind, try to prescribe, you know, I don't think we got to go that way, then we find ourselves like David or uh, Nadab and Abihu. And the same thing. And I think God purposefully doesn't give us a clear description of it because then we would prescribe, well, then we just don't do it like this. We do it just like the rules I was talking about, the, the cars. You know, I've got to have four wheels, but they don't all have to be touching the ground. So we, we'd find a way to break it. You feel? Oh, you're just mean. No, because you know, we have loved ones that we're not sure about. And we're ministering to them, and it's just. And I talked to Brian Friedman, we were walking the canyon one day, and I asked him that. And he, he said, Well, if we, went, if we used our standards like the Roman road, then the, the disciples would be saved. What's your take on that? Yeah, I would say. Um, Salvation is. Mm, uh, what is my take on that? How do I want to say it? Uh, I I would say, minimum salvation is steady progress toward Jesus. And so Hebrews warns us against drifting or stalling out, um, and we know that the Scripture describes. That salvation is belief, uh, but the word for belief is a continuous action. So it, it, it describes for us something that's ongoing. So I would tend to move away from, I find myself moving away from a, although I know it begins in a moment, I think sometimes it can be somewhat deceiving to Tell someone to pray a prayer or say something and you're good. I think it's better to, to describe it as a road that begins with a prayer and continues till we see Jesus face to face. So so then I would tend to look at it as, a, as progress, which, uh, to be honest, in my own life doesn't comfort me all that well because I have a son who's not progressing. And I pray for him and I worry about him and... But but I think I think there should be you know I don't I I would not point to an event I guess I would say I would not point to a he prayed a prayer or I would not point to a, he was baptized or or all of these good things that he did but that there's a steady progress not perfection just progress toward toward the Lord. Yeah, I mean, somewhat, but really, when we look at the, we look at a lot of things and we say, well, I didn't see no fruitfulness, you know, and there's a long, uh, I think God's infinitely more patient than we are, and I think God knows the heart of man, and I think the bottom line is, if the heart of man is submitted to God, he's God's, and we can't always see it, because um, our eyes tend to not focus the same way God's does. So I'm hoping I worry about things I don't need to worry about, but, but I don't know. So, and because I'm messed up and broken, I still worry. I remember a funeral that, that family took 
I don't, I try not to say anything about them being in heaven. I just try to bring comfort and focus on the, the, the life of the individual, you know, and how he related to family and friends. Depends on how much freedom they give me. Some families say, I don't want you to preach. We just want it like this. I have the freedom to say I won't do it. But so I try to I try to do it the way and I I never say no, even when they limit what I can say in a funeral, because um, it may open up a relationship where I might be able to speak into somebody's life later, even though they won't let me right now. So I always say yes. I the same thing with weddings. I always say yes. Um, but I try to I, I would I don't lie. So I, I won't say, you know, he's in a better place or all those things that I just don't say. I just don't talk about it. I'll talk about what Jesus said. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. I'll still give the word, you know, like that, but I, I won't make application. Um, the ones I know for sure, I feel a lot more freedom. Like when I do Jerry's funeral, I'm going to feel very free uh, to me. Really, uh, um, I went to to Jerry and Lee's house to pray a prayer with him just because his wife was a little freaked out and didn't really know how he believed. But I wasn't worried because I watched Jerry. Uh, I watched Jerry on Sunday morning. I watched the joy radiating from his face. I watched his hands lifted in in worship. I'm not saying those are signs or, or symbols, but I could just see he has a relationship with God and he loves God and and so, but in order for, for there to be comfort, I went to him and we sat down across the table. I said, Jerry, have you ever uh, asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior in prayer? Ever submitted yourself and asked him to forgive your sins in prayer? And he says, you know, I don't, I don't know that I ever have. And I said, well, let's do it right now. So he held my hand. We prayed. He cried. It was beautiful. You know, probably three weeks maybe before he died. Something like that. Um, so when, when I do his funeral on the 19th of March, I'm not going to have any problem in my heart saying, Jerry's with the Lord. And I think sometimes those events comfort us more than they really have an impact on where they are. I've also had guys pray a prayer with me that I'm done and I'm looking at them and I'm going, man, you didn't, that didn't happen. You know what I mean? I mean, I said the words that I, I punched the card. I did the thing, but, but you know, heart's not in it. So progress is what helps me. Uh, so I always want to, I personally, I always want to have progress and I always want to see progress, but I try to be patient because God is progress. Don't have to be overnight. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think so. So let me let me take exception to one small point. Um, I think the Bible tells us you can know because John wrote in first John that you that you might know that you have salvation. So we can know we have salvation. However, 
I think when we look at someone, uh, we look at a person's relationship. I, yeah, I don't have perfect eyes. I can't. I'm sure that, you know, uh, there are going to be some surprises. For some people, maybe I'm going to be a big surprise there. I don't know. But there's, you know what I'm saying? I think there are going to be some surprise. And ultimately, God is holy, just, pure, and right. And he's the judge of, the, of all the world will do right. Um, but when I, when I look to people, or when I, as a pastor, I, got, I come to people all the time who will come up to me in prayer and say, man, I'm just, I'm, I'm worried, I'm afraid. And, <coughs> you know, sometimes it's, I, I think I might have committed the unpardonable sin when I was a kid. Or I'm um, really struggling. I don't know if I really have a relationship with Christ. And as a pastor, I want to take them to those scriptures that, say, that describe for us. Here's what a relationship with Christ looks like, you know. And now when John's doing it in First John, pretty sure, I want, I want to say First John, chapter 5 for sure, huh? Uh, well, yeah, but he, he talks about specifically that, that, that you will know that you, uh, that you have the Lord. I want to say in First John chapter five. I'll look it up later. You guys, well, you guys are welcome to look at it. It don't take long to read all of First John, but but I think he I think he describes it. But I think he's very specifically saying in certain instances at his time, which was early ninety A.D. And you have this coming on of Gnostics, and so he's saying, well, look, if you confess that Jesus is the Christ, you're saved. If you Confess that Jesus come in the flesh. You're saved. He's describing uh, uh, events of of uh, knowledge and growth in and under, understanding who Christ is as evidence of of salvation. I, I just would not say that's the hard fast rule because, like I said, we we if we have a hard fast rule, somebody will punch the card. Uh, we do a lot of benevolence here at the church. So something that God's always laid on my heart is. Uh, I, I think without without restriction, God wants us to do what we can to help p- people, whether they deserve it or not, is less relevant. Um, we choose to do that through the board, so everything goes before the board, and the board talks about it. When we were first uh, establishing benevolence, um, it was suggested that well, we ought to you know talk to them about the gospel. Uh, absolutely. Um, and then see if they want to be saved. And I said, no. Because if I make benevolence, if they think benevolence hinges on them praying a prayer with me, they'll pray a prayer with me. I'm going to tell you, they'll pray. They'd have prayed the prayer with me five times because they'll come in at least that many times. And so, right. So what the... So the goal has been not that we don't share the gospel, not that we don't pray with them, not that we don't invite them and try to present all that stuff. But what we give, we give without any strings, I guess. I don't know that that's really a string, but hopefully you understand what I mean. So because what I want is the the pure desire of the heart. Right. God wants love. I can say if we've been maybe you've, you've had struggled in in a marriage before and you say, well, you're saying you love me. Great. But I don't believe it. And, you know, I I think that can happen with God, too, that we're just saying words. Jesus said, you draw near to me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. So it's it's more than that. It's got to be the whole package together. 
So for me, that's what I see. So minimum salvation for me would be progress. That we're that I'm not who I was, but I'm not yet who I'm going to be. So there's a, a consistent. No. <laughs> that, I didn't even hesitate, huh? You can tell him I said that. Donald Trump cracks me up. It's, he's sitting at uh, Liberty University. Do you see his speech at Liberty? And he, he gets asked the question, have you ever asked God for forgiveness? And he says, no. And I think, that's kind of a prerequisite to the whole salvation thing. You know, forgive me of my sins. Yeah, yeah. He cracks me up. He, uh, maybe I won't. I think he scares me more than Hillary, to be honest. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And 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 how many times has he admitted having adulterous affairs and oh Lord have mercy on his soul. But you know what? The Bible says you'll be confessed by the words you spoke. Well one day he, when he stands before God, if he hasn't asked the Lord for forgiveness, God's gonna play that tape. <laughs> yeah, and it's not gonna you know and and prayerfully, you know, I mean I, I that's why I think God calls us to pray for our leadership. And uh, To be honest, I think we're looking at the judgment of God. We're watching judgment of God on TV every night. He said, I will give you children to lead you. And I look and I go, Man, what a bunch of little kids calling each other names. I was just sad to see Rubio stoop to Trump's level and call him, call him names. And I was like, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. You're better than that. You should be. But I have a hard time believing any of them, which is my problem. Whenever I say it from the pulpit, I get in trouble. I get bad letters from people. I say things like, you know, the only requirement to be a politician is you have to lie. If you tell the truth, you can't be a politician. That was probably the worst email I ever got was after I said that. So I try not to do that anymore. <coughs> that might be a little harsh of a judgment on behalf of me. So, but yeah, so Trump is uh, by nature a child of wrath. Bad place to be. Um, okay, again, uh, God not only has holy name, holiness in his nature, he has holy ways. Uh, there's other things I could have got into, but... But I really wanted to say, you know, the way God does stuff is holy. And we can't always connect the dots. But in Psalm 77, 13, your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great as our God? Who is so great a God as our God? God's ways are holy. How God does it. You know, if you were Daniel at... 15 going to Babylon you might have felt different uh, any number of people in the same but God's holy and what he does is right and I try to remind myself that Jackie's not in control sometimes I think maybe I could have been or I, I could have done something differently but I, the reality of life is I don't, there's not a replay button right so I got to live with the decision I made and then do something about maybe the next one, learn, grow. But the, way, the ways of the Lord, I believe, are, are holy, just, pure, 
And so when I look and I think something's wrong with how God's allowed something or done something, which, by the way, often happens when I'm at somebody's house and their loved one is dying and they're gasping for breath on a, on a bed and the person is frustrated because that's a hard thing. I don't know how many of you have experienced it, but that's a hard thing to watch somebody you love like that. And it can cause you to question, right, the goodness of God the holiness of God. And so when I find myself in a position, um, I fall back on the things I know for sure. And I know for sure God's ways are holy. God is good. And I just don't see all the pieces. I I don't understand. But I can be in that place, right? How many times does the psalmist say, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing. How many times did Jeremiah say that in Ezekiel and and so it's okay that we feel that way, but we have to realize where's our foundation and come back to that, that solid ground. I wanted to talk about some of the theological basis of the holiness of God because I think it really helps us understand how theology works. Theology takes the things that we see in Scripture and, and builds, hopefully, logical bridges from concept to concept so that we see how they all fit together. <coughs> So holiness flows from God's transcendence. God's transcendence over the world sets him apart from everything in the world. Uh, What is so set apart is holy. Since holiness means to be set apart from everything in the world, therefore the holiness of God follows his transcendence. We we kind of talked about that, right? God's bigger. Uh, The holiness flows from his infinity. God is an infinite being. And there can only, there, and there can be only one infinite being if there were two infinite beings then there would be more than an infinite now this is not talking about mathematical infinity we kind of bridged that a little bit when we talked about what we meant by god being infinite uh which is impossible thus the infinite being is a class of one and what is in a class of one is unique set apart from all other things uh which is what is meant by being holy holiness follows from absolute perfection Sacred scripture asserts that God is absolutely perfect. There cannot be <clears throat> two beings who are absolutely perfect. For to be two, they must be differ. Otherwise, they would be the same. To differ, one would have to possess some perfection the other lacked. But the one who lacked some perfection would not be absolutely perfect. Therefore, there can be only one being who is absolutely perfect, holy in a metaphysical sense. Further, if perfection is thought of as moral perfection, then absolute perfection implies holiness as well. God is absolutely perfect, and what is absolutely perfect is set apart from everything else. Therefore, God is holy. So kind of just building the logical bridge. It makes your head swim. It's okay. Spend a little time chewing on logic, and logic will make your head swim. But basically the idea is to form a chain of the information that we have that fits together logically without contradiction. And that's why the language seems to be odd. That's what I love about theology, and that's what frustrates me about theology. But the, the, it's the beauty of trying to connect the ideas together so that we, it fits without contradiction. Um, an important implication of the moral attributes is kind of how it associates with us. The moral dimension of God's holiness, unlike the metaphysical, can be emulated by his creatures. When we talk about the moral um, 
attributes of God, those are attributes that we can reflect. So basically what's being built on. So that's the idea behind 2 Peter 1.4 that says that we can participate in the divine nature. The moral attributes of God are things that we can reflect of God. Thus God declares, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore be holy as I am holy. God's calling us to reflect the moral attribute. And God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. So Paul urges, Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So the idea, again, reflecting uh, the moral attributes of God. This is the kind of, hopefully, brings it together. So we can be like God in his moral attributes, but we cannot emulate him in his metaphysical. That is why the Bible never says, I am infinite, so be infinite. Be infinite as I am infinite. We can't do that. Um, But we can uh, reflect the holiness of God. Um, Okay, the second point that I wanted us to get through tonight was righteousness. God's justice, um, which again is going to be an area that you're going to see come up in uh, your apologetics. God's righteousness or justice is a moral attribute. So as a moral attribute, what does that mean? That's something we can reflect, right? Um, As such, it is intrinsic to God and extrinsic to creatures. It's a part of God's metaphysic, but it's something that we have outside that we can emulate. Or uh, follow the example. Uh, Being an infinite, unchanging being, God is infinite and immutably righteous. Literally, the word righteous, diakaios, means to be just or right. Theologically, it refers to the intrinsic characteristics of God, wherein he is always right. So if there's a disagreement between me and God, I am wrong and he is right. That becomes, you know, kind of a um, a basis for at least some of the things I think that are important in uh, in this particular election and where we as a nation are going to go morally because not only do you, do you have, as always, the right of the unborn that, that is, uh, should be vital in our view of who should lead the country and who shouldn't, but also marriage uh, and and the redefinition of what marriage is. And, and the next president could possibly name three justices. That's a big deal. Four? Yeah, that'd be humongous. That's a majority, yeah? Is there, how many are there? Nine. So, man, that's a lot. That's, that, that's why this huge, this election is huge huge so um but but i think that it's important if god says this is what marriage is for us that settles it and there is remember we talked about in the beginning of apologetics that our fundamental position our foundational truth is revealed to us by god through his word right so does the church have the right to redefine marriage no It doesn't. I don't care what they say. 
or who, what preacher gets up and says, well, it's okay now. No, it's not okay. It's not ever going to be okay. This is what God's word says. We don't have authority over God's word. God's word has authority over us. And whenever I talk to people about voting, and I always say this, I vote the Bible. So I can tell you right now, if the candidate is not pro-life and pro-marriage, I won't vote for them. I don't care who they put up. And I, I, I'm not certain what I will do on, a, on Trump and uh, what's her name? Hillary. But I'll write in. I will vote because men bled to give me that right. I'll vote. I, I, I take that serious. But I don't believe in wasting. Uh, I, and I, but I also believe I'm going to be accountable to God. And when I stand before God, I'm not going to say I pitched my hat behind this guy who, you know, continued to do the things that I, that I have to be morally against. So, so I always try to encourage people, you know, let that be. Everybody vote. And I'll still love you even if you vote for Trump. But I question your sanity, but I'll still, I, I will choose to still love you. Yeah. <laughs> I better slow down or I'm going to get myself in trouble. So, the righteous God is always right. If his word says, this is it, that's the way it is. God's always right. Righteousness involves his true ordinances. That's his word. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinance of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. Uh Psalm 19, like Psalm 119, (coughs) uses several words to describe the Word of God um, that I would attribute to the whole thing. But um, that's what he's talking about, about ordinances. Righteousness is in his Word. Righteousness is the foundation of his throne. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Well, that makes it easy, right? Love and faithfulness go before you. Righteousness is the scepter of his kingdom. Hebrews 1.8 Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. The scepter is the manner in which you rule. So God is righteous. Uh, righteousness does no injustice. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning he dispenses his justice And every new day he does not fail. So God is right. We don't. I don't always understand, and I can't always explain how something works out. I just know God's right. I don't have all the information. God's right. I don't know how it bridges, but He told me that it bridges. It works. And when I stand in heaven. On that day when I no longer look through a mirror, when I no longer see dimly, when I know as I am known, I will be able to declare righteous and true are your judgments, O God. And everything he's done will have been right. Uh, Righteousness will endure forever. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Righteousness is the ultimate standard of judgment for the world. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Who's he referring to? 
It could be. <laughs> so Jesus Christ said, I, He's the one to whom the Father has entrusted all judgment. All judgment, all justice, or all judgment will come through Him, righteous and pure. Righteousness renders to all according to their deeds. Yes. I don't know about you guys. I don't want, I want mercy and grace. Righteousness appoints to all according to his deeds. God will give to each person according to what he has done. And righteousness is the basis for the believer's reward. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not to me only, but to who? All who have what? What is it that God wants from us? We love the Lord our God. So he'll give this to all who have loved his appearing. How is it that we love his appearing? Man, we, we learned to long to see him. Long to... to, to, to I, I can't wait to see his face. But <clears throat> it's more than just I'm looking forward to the rapture or I'm looking forward to the second coming. <clears throat> but it is I'm living my life loving his appearing. Jesus coming back today, there are are things that I should leave not undone. Or I should make I do because I love his appearing. I love his appearing. So we want to live our lives in such a way. Um and righteousness is revealed in the law of God. Moses describes it in this way the righteousness that is by the law. Now, while we say things like we are not under the law, does that mean that the law is not right? If I'm not under the law, does it mean murder's okay now? Okay. So there, there is still a response toward the law of God from God's people. Right? The law is still good. So when the law says love your neighbor, that's a good law, right? Well, a few verses before that, the law also tells us that homosexuality is an abomination. It's in the same chapter. You can't pitch one without the other. Nobody's talking about pitching love your neighbor, are they? Hope not. <laughs> yeah. So these are this is God's moral code. This is what God says, where God says this is right and this is not right. And so there's righteousness in the law. Law is right. There's also a part of the law as part of your apologetic that's going to be thrown at you. What part of the law they throw at you? Any ideas? Do you sow with two different seeds in the same field? Do you wear product made of two different materials? Because the Bible says not to wear do you eat shellfish? What's the difference between the law of God divides in the, in the three components? Um, one of them is uh, ritual or ceremonial law. All the law was fulfilled by Christ, right? But when we look at the ritual and ceremonial law, that was the law that we so that we could recognize the holy, the pure, the just, so that mankind could see. Uh, or so that the Jew could see their Messiah. And when Jesus came, he fulfilled it. That's done. So when we stand now, the reason we are holy or righteous is not by what we have done, but because Jesus stands for us. 
Make sense? So I saw a video today. I thought it was really good, uh, which I almost never watch those videos people put on Facebook, but somehow I ended up watching this one. It was a good meter. So people are in heaven and they're making their case for whether they're good or not. It was kind of hokey. And they get on the scale, right? And the goodometer goes bad, you know, so they, they go to hell. And the next guy, they go to hell, they go to hell, go to hell. And they come up to a guy, he's got this huge, everybody's got like a file, you know, they hand them. This guy's got a big file, lots of bad stuff in it. Um, but right as he hands it to the guy, and the guy's like, well, let's see how you do on the goodometer. Then Jesus walks up and hands him a file. And the file says he's a child of God. And he goes, oh. Okay, well, let's get on the good old meter, and the, the sinner goes to step on it, and the guy says, not you, Jesus. And I thought, that's a really good picture, because it's not, Jesus is judged for me. He gets on the scale. That's what makes me good. Not me, not something I did, but because of him and his, and I thought, wow, that is, that is a good picture of what, being in Christ is like, I don't get on there and somehow I'm good now. No, Jesus gets on it for me. And I thought that was, that was a really good picture of, of how righteousness is, is achieved for us. It's by him. So when we look at those aspects of the ceremonial law, <clears throat> Jesus completed the ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law was to recognize Messiah. See Messiah. He's going to be holy. He's going to be perfect. He's going to be pure. He's going to show you who he is. Why? He's going to heal a guy on the Sabbath. Man can't do that. You're right. A man can't do that. Who's the only person who's allowed to work on the Sabbath? God. So what was he saying? And and that's what he said. He looked right at him and said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one who works seven days a week. So anyways, some of those are, are things that will come out in our apologetic as we as we deal with some of that uh, as a result of the moral attributes um, we should reflect it right so these are attributes that should be reflected in our life um, so we should be instructed in righteousness right how is it that we're do, we do that second timothy 3 16 and 17 all scripture is given by inspiration of god and is profitable for doctrine reproof correction and instruction in righteousness so we should be instructed in righteousness. What's right? Where do I find what's right? Word of God. We should seek righteousness. Matthew 6, 33. But seek ye first what? And his righteousness. Right? And all these other things will be added unto you. We should pursue righteousness. <coughs> Second Timothy 2, 2. And all these things you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. A constant pursuit of the righteousness of God. Right? We want to go to all the world and make... Right. Teaching them the things Jesus, baptizing them. Jesus is with us. Uh, We should thirst after righteousness. Matthew 5, 6. Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for? Why? What will happen to them? They'll be filled. What's our part in that? i got to hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
we should suffer for righteousness. I think those days are rapidly approaching. 1 Peter 3.14 But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The day will come when you're going to want to say that to yourself. I don't think it matters which one of the two crazy ones get elected. Unless God does a miracle through his people being united and something changes and he grants to us a stay. Yeah, there's there's crazy times coming. So be ready. It'll be good. Every time you see something bad happen to the people of God in the Bible, good stuff came. Good kings. Good leadership grows from it. We won't stay in that. I'm telling you, we won't stay in that. The church thrives when that happens and things change. If we want our nation to change, it might be the way it's got to go. 2 Timothy 3.12 Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, what happens to them? We haven't had any of that yet. Rest of the world has. A lot of the rest of the world has. We should submit to righteousness. Romans 10.3 For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Now that's, to me that's part of that whole concept of submitting to God. Where I say you're right. Probably my main problem with a movement that would describe themselves as uh, gay Christians. If they mean gay Christians in the sense that they have a desire, a a struggle with same-sex attraction, I probably don't have a problem with it. But if they are saying, uh, I can be gay and be a Christian, um, no, you're not submitted to the righteousness of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, it says, We were, some of us struggled with all these things, and such were some of you, but you've been justified, you've been sanctified, you've been glorified. God changes us, right? Progression, not perfection, just progression. And the idea that I can be a man, that's why I love CR, I can be a man struggling, um, but I'm defined by my relationship in Christ. That's okay. But I I can't be a man who says, nope, God's word is wrong. It doesn't mean that. And what I do is okay. And there's a lot of people who do that, not just gay people. I mean, that's just an easy example to to pick on. But but there's plenty, right, where people can say, oh, God's word doesn't really care if I'm married. I'm married in spirit. Um. You better be sure. You better be sure. You're you're putting an awful an awful lot on that concept. But I think we it's something that we should be submitted to. Uh, we should be slaves of righteousness. Romans six eighteen. Having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. The same way we were slaves of sin. And we should practice righteousness. First John three seven. Little children. Let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He referring to the Lord. 
<coughs> there is, <coughs> I, I put in, oh, let's talk about the theological basis. I put in an objection we'll talk about briefly because this is one you're going to see in Islamic uh, discussions that's going to come up if you uh, uh, ever are doing outreach with Muslims. This is one of the discussions that's likely to come out. So let's look at the theological basis. Theologically, God's righteousness is grounded in his morality and his immutability. God doesn't change. God is moral. Uh, God is metaphysically, absolute, morally perfect. So the reasoning goes like this. God is an immutable being, unchanging. God is a moral being. Hence, God must be unchangingly moral. But being righteous is a characteristic of a moral being. Therefore, God is unchangingly righteous. Um, just like I was telling you, it's a logical chain between the things that we're talking about. Here's the objection you might hear. The primary objection to God's righteousness is the doctrine of His grace. How can God justly save the unjust? The objection is penetrating, but the answer is profound. Here it is, the objection. According to Scripture, God punished the righteous Christ for the unrighteous sinners. And transferred his righteousness to our account. This seems like an unrighteous or unjust process. Why should the innocent be punished for the guilty? Why should the guilty receive the alien righteousness of another? Um, almost every Muslim debate that I've watched, the concept of the unrighteousness of the atonement comes up. So it's an argument against um, biblical God. And so the response um, I have listed out in here for us um, basically is answered in Romans chapter 3. <coughs> so, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. So the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed in the life of Christ. As you line up the life of Christ with the law and the prophets, you see He is perfect and righteous. And we're going to see how that's applied. Um, he says, There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation, substitute, by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith. So in essence, God punished the righteous, Christ, for the unrighteous so that His righteousness, His justice, could be satisfied, propitiated, and His mercy released on all who believe. So He can be both the just and the justifier of the unjust because His justice was satisfied. How was His justice satisfied? By the death of Jesus Christ. He satisfied His justice and because, uh, and so His grace can be freely exercised on all who receive His gift of salvation by faith. His justice is satisfied by Christ being the substitute, and His grace is poured out on the unjust all on the same basis. So it is, He is able to be both just and justifier. 
The next argument they'll say is Jesus didn't die on the cross, but that'll be a different apologetic but from Islam. Yeah, but I think he did that even before the Garden of Gethsemane. But the idea that, yeah, that I think that I think yes, I think it's righteous because because it the law demanded death, and all throughout the history of the Old Testament, who died for the people? The unguilty. Didn't what would they would they sacrifice a lamb? The lamb didn't do none of those sins, right? So so all along that was the description that God gave that there is a propitiation, a substitute. There is a substitute. The problem was the substitute of the Old Testament uh, was continual because it didn't really substitute; it just covered, it just gave you a pass, looking forward to the cross, the ultimate covering. Because a lamb's an animal. It can't really put its hand in my hand. And it certainly can't put its hand in God's hand. But Jesus, the God-man, can. Perfection. (coughs) So. Yes, ma'am. Shoot. Oh, I should have known somebody was going to ask me about that. So the moral, the ceremonial... Or ritual, and I can't remember the third one, but I'll remember by next time. The oh, I'll I'll get it to you. I knew I was going to get called on a car, but as soon as I said three aspects, I said, "What are the three aspects?" <laughs> <laughs> It'll come back to me. Somebody want to pray us out? <laughs>